When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch, episode 21, covering the Uprising 2011 show from Long Island, New York on June 4th, 2011. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed, or you can find us on our own dedicated RSS feed on every podcast platform and application. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you'd like to donate to the show, no obligation, certainly appreciated. Click the link in the show notes or go to redcircle.com slash show slash open voice gate and click the button. You can do a one-time or reoccurring donation. Again, not required whatsoever, but certainly appro- we certainly would be appreciated. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spirit. I'm joined as always by Case Low. In Case, I didn't realize this when we were recording last week, but we we're already in the 20s. But if 21, this thing is now, the series is now an adult. It has already been able to vote, fight in wars in the United States. It can now go buy liquor if it so wanted to, much like the Mr. Peanut thing on Twitter. How do you feel about it? It's kind of a wild thing we've been doing this now for almost five months. Well, yeah, the show is now as old as I am, 21 years old, not to brag, but I am very young. I am very just, you know, ready to take on the world, ready to have it crush me, very happy, Obviously, with every decision I've made, I'm not kept up at night by regrets about career choices or personality traits I've picked up along the way. Things are obviously going well on my end. As for Drangit USA, it's fitting that you brought this up now because we, as we go along in this episode in particular, I think we are now at a point where we not only have the hindsight of the promotion ending and almost 10 years of distance between this show and where we are in the world currently, but we're now being able to form hindsight with the shows we're covering now and the beginning of the promotion. And we're able to see the way things have maybe morphed and shifted and changed along the way. And the show that we're talking about today represents a ton of change in Drangate USA. It's a ton of change and also something that while watching it, 
there are some things I know like both of us have been like, okay, when are we going to start seeing like the big moments, one of the slide, but two reaching to like a point of like late stage DGUSA that I know that you were starting to actively follow and a time that I was kind of at a certain point wondering when they were going to put the dog down. And I feel like we're kind of approaching that point in a way, you know, like this show definitely did have a vibe of, oh gosh, there's a lot of stuff happening and not a lot of stuff that seems to be landing. And it, the days of like the five star matches and the days of like the wrestling observer show of the years seem to be further and further away from us. We've moved away from God's light with DGUSA. Well, it's funny you bring this up now. I was going to say this at the end of the show, but I, I have no issue saying it up top. We clearly hit a phase change in the promotion's history with John Moxley's exit at Open the Ultimate Gate 2011 in Atlanta, which if you have not heard that show, it is in your podcast feed. We talked about all of WrestleMania weekend these past few weeks, but you, you can look at the first four shows in Dragon Gate USA history from July 2009 through January, February 2010, where you had the Young Bucks and you had Davey Richards and you had these cards that were not only mostly made up of Dragon Gate talent where they were the overwhelming majority, but they were receiving critical praise on a level that still, you know, Open the Historic Gate is considered a landmark independent professional wrestling event. It is, it is on that upper echelon of indie wrestling. And when they hit Phoenix, WrestleMania weekend shows five and six, you know, the Young Bucks finish up, Davey Richards is gone, Brian Kendrick is gone, uh, they experiment with TJP, and he doesn't last out of that weekend as well. So there was clearly a phase change from Fearless 2010, and specifically with the exit of Davey Richards, into phase two, where the top American in the promotion is John Moxley. And now Moxley's run atop of what I would consider to be phase two of Drangate USA. It's much longer than four shows. It, it lasts for an entire year from essentially WrestleMania weekend to WrestleMania weekend. And now we are in this new era in the promotion where John Moxley is gone. Obviously, the names of yesteryear have not returned. Johnny Gargano is the top American star, but he's... You know, if we had to throw like a fantasy booking ranking on him, he still feels like more of an upper mid-carder than an actual legitimate main eventer. And now these shows are overwhelmingly American. And it feels like the first half of these shows coming forward, because I haven't looked ahead at the at the shows two or three shows in advance up until now, the, the first 20 episodes of the series, I would look at the next show to know what's coming, but I wasn't necessarily plotting, you know, three or four shows in advance. Well, after this show, I looked at the cards for the rest of 2011, just because I, I had a pretty good idea of what was what was coming. And this is an entirely different promotion than even the United Tag Weekend, let alone the, the Northeast Double Shot at the end of 2010. I mean, we are now in a drastically different time where there's just not a ton of Dragon Gate participation on these shows. And part of the reason that I think we wanted to do this series was to pinpoint exactly where the wheels come off and things fall apart. And it is now, it is this late spring, early summer, June 2011 triple shot where you can say, okay, this is precisely when Dragon Gate talent stopped being the focal point of these shows. And now Dragon Gate USA is something else. And especially as we transition into 2012, that will become 
increasingly obvious due to behind-the-scenes changes and the way those shows are presented, but we're living in that now. This is the mark of something new within the promotion. Yeah, and it's something that really, with the way that they, I, I, I think it's even worth getting into, the, the way that they went from going from, like, about every other month doing a double shot, and then, like, I mean, you look at 2010, they ran a lot of shows in 2010. It's kind of remarkable they've run at least a dozen shows in 2010. In 2011, it's a lot more, like, planned out of, we have these triple shot weekends, and that's it. Like, there's only 12 shows, I believe, in in this week in this year for them. And it's something that's kind of remarkable in a way that we see this change happening. and something that will become a big note that... I'll talk more about next week as we start looking at the overall U.S. landscape is we are really about to start seeing a financial crunch on this promotion. And if it doesn't seem like that now, it sure will in 2012. But really before we get into that and really get into the card, as we as these are now like triple shot weekends now, we've broken up like the timelines. Like last week we talked about stuff that pretty much was all DGUSA related. This week though, Case... We are in one of the more interesting times in Dragon Gate history as we're going to take a look at what's happened in Dragon Gate between April of 2011 and June of 2011. It's a busy time in Japan. It's the aftermath of 311, and just a lot of stuff's going on. Yeah, I've got an extensive Japan timeline that we'll break down in just a second. I do want to say, to your point really quick, there's 12 shows in 2011. The crazy thing is... I believe there's only, I'm doing my math correctly, there's only 10 shows in 2010, but they are spread out throughout the entire calendar year, and it's all double shots and then an anniversary single shot, and then the aforementioned Fearless in January at the start of the year, but it feels like a promotion that is active for an entire calendar year. 2011, it's all triple shots. It's four different triple shots, and it feels very vacuumized and like, okay, well, now the Dragon Gate talent comes in and does this, and then they'll go back to their home and rinse and repeat. So it's it's interesting that they ran more shows in 2011, but 2010 feels like a much more just full Year of programming, I think, is the word I'm trying to use there. It's just very strange. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And as we get to 2012 and 2013 and then closing out, closing up shop with 2014, we'll see how this also drastically changes year to year as well. Yes. Uh, but in the meantime, it, it's so weird. We did those Southern shows, and that was WrestleMania weekend, and it just we didn't have a ton of notes. It didn't seem like a ton was going on, not only in Japan— outside of the 311 disaster, but just in the wrestling world, there wasn't a lot happening. Whereas this week, we have an extensive Japan timeline. Next week, we look at the American wrestling scene, and there's a ton of stuff that goes on there. But we do need to talk about Japan to get a better understanding of what is about to occur in Dragon Gate USA. But we start off with the news on April 5th that main referee Kenta Tomoaka has been fired from the company due to an unspecified but apparently severe contract violation, and then there was an update a few days later in which he was arrested in a Kobe area restroom for what, Mike? It was listed as a stimulant of, prob- of public drug use. I remember, and I'm, this is me not saying this as a fact, I remember it might have been cocaine possession. I, I want to say it was like this, but they caught him using in a uh, in a Kobe area bathroom. That's something that if you're someone who's followed the Japanese scene and you've seen how their reaction, especially in the Japanese society about drug use, that is bad 
very bad. We've seen that in wrestling. We see that with other performers and celebrities in Japan. Uh, Kenta Tamaoka was was other than referee Yagi was pretty much like from day one, like as, at least from like the uh, shift from uh, Toriyaman to Dragon Gate, one of their main referees, and it was like one of those things that when it happened, like he was a major character in the promotion throughout a lot of his tenure up until 2011. And ever since then, ever since the firing, uh, he's left wrestling. And I don't know. I don't, I don't assume that 10 years or nine years later, he's still in jail just because I, I know their laws are kind of draconian in comparison to the West towards drug use, but I don't think it's that draconian to my knowledge, but he's, that's it for Kenta and Dragon Gate. Yeah, an odd note to start the show, but as we talked about a few episodes ago, Drangate was was building everything up for this late March Sumo Hall show, Compilation Gate 2011, and that had to be canceled due to the 311 disaster. So uh, from April 12th through April 14th, they ran a series of Champion Gate so- shows, and those started in Shinjuku Face on April 12th, 2011, with the notable matches being the Takuawasa return match, where Don Fuji and Super Shisa defeated Awasa and Cyber Kong. There was also a tag match with Masaki Mochizuki and Shinjiro Otani against Gamma and Yasushi Kanda. In the main event, Ryu Saito and Genki Horiguchi defended the Open the Twin Gate titles against Yamato and Shingo Takagi. Mike, I will also run down the April 13th and April 14th cards real quick. There was a non-televised show on April 13th where the main event was the Open the United Gate, the Dragon Gate USA Tag Titles. Uh, Masato Yoshino and Pac defended the belts against Dragon Kid and Ricochet when Yoshino pinned Ricochet. And then the next night, Tokyo, Cork, and Hall... I will run down the main matches here, which included open the Freedom Gate title match with Yamato defending against Yasushi Kanda, an open the Triangle Gate match where if World 1 lost, they would have to disband where Shima, Dragon Kid, and Ricochet defeated BB Hulk, Pac, and Susumu Yokosuka, so thus they did have to disband. In the main event, an open the Dream Gate title match where Masaki Mochizuki defeated Masada Yoshino in his fifth, de- fifth defense to become the 13th Open the Dreamgate champion. Mike, do you have any strong memories, any memorable matches from this string of shows? So this was basically them piecing out everything from Compilation Gate over the next few shows. So that's why we had all these title matches. Of course, you made sure to include this person's match because he is someone who's near and dear to my heart. Taku Iwasa took time off due to severe injury leading up to the show. He was a member of Kamikaze. He was kind of a focal point of the former Tozawa Juku stable where he kind of, him and Tozawa both joined Kamikaze at the same time, but Awasa, they tried to elevate. He had a Dreamgate shot against, it was it was not against Shima in that ring. I don't think it was, but he had, did have a Dreamgate shot. It was against and Doi, wasn't it? It was against Doi, you're right. Yeah, it was against Doi. And took time off, he returned. He will not be a part of this timeline. History will have for much longer, Taku Awasa. Soon after, I think it was 2013, had his final match, and now is fully retired. And it was really cool having him back. Uh, Oriawa, which is a tag team of him, and Kenichiro Oriawa was one of those like tag teams that people don't really talk about. But whenever anyone asks me for drag team, Dragon Gate tag team matches, I toss on a couple uh, Oriawa and Awasa tag matches because they just were like a really cool tag team. So him coming back was really cool. Otani was in uh, was at the Shinjuku Face Show because this was also kind of a charity show that they were doing for relief they were doing this for 311 relief and that's also why if you notice on the dgusa shows you've been following around with us 
that everyone had on a Pray for Japan armband and they were selling stuff. And I remember that Dragon Gate J was down at WrestleMania that week. And I remember that Joey Bayo talked about the fact that he helped run their donation drive down there. And then this is just like an interesting show. Uh, I don't think the uh, the the uh, the show from Uta Nomoya ever made tape. I don't, I don't remember much about that one. Uh, Marahi Asapa versus Yamato and Shingo was a really solid tag match. And then this Corkin is a big show. Like one of those like like drastically like earth changing shows because you had Masaki Mochizuki win the mat win the Dream Gate. You had the uh, title versus disband match where World One has to disband. And then one of the few times that the Ephraim Gate was defended, but really the big highlight of these like of the show. And I know it's a full episode of Infinity that they kind of chopped up a little bit where the uh, two final matches and then also with uh, World One disbanding, we're starting to see the beginning of a unit that we talked a little bit about last week and the Mochizuki Army. Yeah, I had never seen the April Cork and Hall show until just a few days ago when it magically popped up in my inbox. Uh, thank you to who supplied that show for me. And it was, you know, an hour-long infinity cut down. So I saw clips of the Open the Freedom Gate match between Yamato and Yasushi Kondo, which looked incredible. And then the World 1 Disbands match, it's a 29-minute-long match. Probably 15 minutes of it are shown on TV. I can add that to the holy grail of, oh my god, I wish we had this match in full, because this match is absurd in what happens. Uh, the the BB Hulk, Pac, Yokosuka team is marvelous, and, and I'll talk about it a little bit later as we go on in this timeline. I don't love BB Hulk at this time period. I actually think he's, he's pretty disappointing in some of his matches, but him, Pac, Yokosuka together, that worked, and then... Mochizuki versus Yoshino is a matchup that can never fail. Uh, it's not their best match, even in Cork and Hall. Their 2014 match is, is even better. But this one is an outstanding match, and it you know led into the post-match where Mochizuki celebrated this title win, but he said, you know, with Blood Warriors having so many guys, so many members, it's probably not smart for him to be unaffiliated. So he asked Susumu, Pac, and... Uh, Yoshino, they wanted to team up, and, and they said yes, and then Mo- Mochizuki called out Kamikaze, who was still active at this point, and Yamato seemed okay with the idea of maybe Kamikaze joining forces with these guys, but he also appealed uh, to be the first challenger for Mochizuki, and Mochizuki agreed because one year prior, he was defeated by Yamato in a Dreamgate challenge, so that is what's coming up in just a few shows at a big, big pay-per-view. You did drop out like one of my favorite lines ever on uh, Dragon Gate content where when Mochizuki called out Kamikaze, he made the similar appeal saying, from here on, you're either an ally, an enemy, or Kamada, <laughs> a.k.a. Shenlong, <laughs> a.k.a. Bondi Ryu, which I think is like an all-time, like, you, you either matter and you're against me or you're with me or you're just over off to the side. Well, which it's, I think... it's the three genders. It's ally, enemy, and Bondi Ryu. That's, that's how we <laughs> define ourselves in this crazy modern world. It, it, it and also it's something that like the the storyline of of course Mochizuki Army would later become Junction Three was very interesting because you then had like Blood Warriors which was such a massive presence on these shows. I mean, looking at the uh, the uh, Kobe Samo Hall show from the the next tour, every match had a other than the main event was uh, Blood Warriors versus, and it just became a thing like where it was like a natural condition that it was going to go to a two side war and it was going to take up the most of the roster, except for the people who aren't really like active members of the roster, like Kamada. So it was something that like, you started to see this and you're like, okay, Kamikaze, this becomes a thing. And it also is going to bring up a point that after 
Blood Wars Injunction 3, and I'm going to bring up to you about how this applies in DGUSA. This really became the focus of the promotion at this point up until the big disbands match in 2013. Yeah, no, it's it's an exciting time period. The action continues on April 22nd in Sambo Hall. Uh, this is, you know, an aforementioned, essentially unaffiliated or Mochizuki Army versus Blood Warrior show, uh, with the exception of the main event, which was Masaki Mochizuki and Masato Yoshino teaming together to wrestle Yamato and Cyber Kong. This show is strange. The Mochizuki-Yoshino team sounds great in theory, but... I didn't love what I saw from this match. Do you have any recollection of viewing this at any point? It's wild that for like the next year, like they had to figure out which teams work within these two uh, giant units. You know what I mean? Because it's a point where like Blood Warriors and Junction 3 each have about like a dozen people in it. So you had to figure out like which pairs have chemistry. And Mochizuki and Yoshino really didn't have much chemistry. Like they were fine. Like this was like a match that was very interesting because it was like one of the first times they ever really teamed. So that was remarkable for that. But I mean, when you're in a match where Cyber Kong is kind of like the highlight, like the Cyber Kong team is a highlight, then you kind of know that something's off. That's a good, that's a good gauge uh, to judge your chemistry with one another. There's also just two days later, a Hakata Star Lane show. This also aired as a one hour Dragon Gate Infinity and featured uh, the number one contenders for the Open the Dream Gate and Open the Brave Gate titles in a singles match with Yamato, who was about to challenge for the Dream Gate, defeating Naruki Doi, who was about to challenge Pac for the Brave Gate title, uh, as well as a main event of uh, the Open the Triangle Gate match between Shima Drankid and Ricochet against Shingo Takagi, Cyber Kong, and Kagator. And I should also note, there was a Masato Yoshino and BB Hulk versus Mochizuki in Susumu match, which also, BB Hulk, just not really doing it for me at this time period, didn't love that match. Well, it makes a lot of sense what's going to happen in June with Hulk, doesn't yeah, so it? Well, very, like, very much so. It, it, it's something where, like, it makes sense, but in the same way, you're like, oh, okay, like, we were talking about how great 20... 2009 and 2010 a bb hulk was and really like 2011 he was just kind of there so like getting the belt off and when they did made sense at least from like a dgusa side because other than i mean in the uh the the uh triangle gate contra disband match he was not having bangers no that triangle gate contra disband matches it seems like an all-timer again i really wish we had the full version of that i will amend your point by saying B.B. Hulk in the first half of 2011, just kind of there. B.B. Hulk in the second half of 2011, a, a god. Just an incredible, incredible man. I can't wait to <laughs> discuss that, rewatch some of it. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And then after the Hakata Star Lane show, uh, Yokosuka, Hulk, and Pac formally agree to a new unit deal with Mochizuki and Yoshino, and they start the official unit on the next show. And that brings us to May of 2011, and specifically... Dead or Alive 2011, the first big show for Dragon Gate after the 311 disaster. I'll run down this full card because I think it is a historically great Dragon Gate show in which we see, show. It, we, we see Super Shenlong, and I'm going to give it my best shot, Mike. We'll see how it goes. Takuya Tomomakai. Defeating. There we go. Yeah, you I, nailed I, it. I feel good about it. Super Shisa <laughs> and Sachi Hoka Machine take the loss in that opener. Don Fuji and Kenichiro Rai, they defeat Naoki Tanazaki and the Metal Warrior. Yasushi Kanda pins Susumu Yokosuka in a singles match. That just sounds wrong 
reading that out loud. There is an open the Brave Gate match. Pac defeats Naruki Doi to retain the title in his seventh defense, as well as a Twin Gate match where Saito and Horiguchi defend the belts against Masato Yoshino and BB Hulk. There is a Blood Warriors versus Kamikaze defeated revives survival captain's fall elimination match with Shingo, Kong, Iwasa, and Kagatora defeating Shima, Dragon Kid, Ricochet, and Gamma, where Shingo just essentially destroyed everybody. He was faced with a one-on-four deficit and managed to overcome the odds by pinning Dragon Kid directly and giving Kamikaze the instant victory. And then the main event, a GOAT-tier, all-timer, open-the-dream-gate title match, Masaki Mochizuki, defeats Yamato for his first defense of the belt in a match refereed by Red Shoes Uno of New Japan, who was kind of all over Drangate for a good portion of this year after, uh, you know, the firing that we mentioned at the top of the show. Referee Yagi was kind of the only guy active, so they brought in Uno, and he referees this title match and gives it a, a weird, like, aura of legitimacy that I think Drangate so often strives for, and something as simple as having Red Shoes Uno in there accomplish that goal. Yeah, this is a really kind of remarkable show. Like, it is probably, before they started doing cage matches at Dead or Alive, the best Dead or Alive show, the best Aichi show they had up to that point. I, I would um, say absolutely. Like, and just like top to bottom, and you mentioned that the uh, Kanda loss, what, or the Kanda victory over his former, like, married pair partner i mean those two that was the tag team in m2k was kanda and susumu mochizuki at that time and the idea that was that there was a metal warrior that was about that like was in match two but also was involved in match three hit him with a guitar because like the big thing that was like happening there was a dr muscle before the big reveal of blood warriors that was supposed to be ken 45 of el dorado and also was a former torimon guy i forgot who was his gimmick name was in Torimon X, he was an X guy, but he got injured and didn't make the appearance and they kind of yanked him. But it was interesting that Dr. Muscle and then also Mill Warrior came back and having like that involvement there. But like really this Captain's Fall match is one of those things that Dragon Gate doesn't do very many like Captain's Fall or like special matches. Like having the big uh, Wakiyama rules match was kind of like a throwback to this time period where like the idea of this match was Everyone on this team, on each team, can get eliminated. However, the match will not end until one of the captains takes the fall. So the idea was if, and and just like looking at it, like the first thing in the match was Kagatori doing a flash pit on Shima, but then two minutes later, Kid does one on Owasa, which meant that as it's a revival, Shima, who was eliminated, gets to come back in the match. So it's something that you're able to have like this match that can go 21 minutes here. And there'll be matches that we'll talk about in the series that go far longer than this that kept on like the certain like frantic pace and that you could have a situation where Takagi is down four to one and then survives for about really like a five minute stretch of him just taking being five on one against four on one against Blood Warriors and then scoring the one pen and that pen ends up mattering very quickly in Dragon Gate. And then yeah, the Dream Gate match like Mochizuki's title reign here up until like recent years was one of my favorite title reigns that happened and started off with this this Yamato match where like 25 minutes and just they kind of went full bore not dissimilar to the match that Mochizuki won the title from Yamato with so if you're looking for like a match that had that same kind of vibe but maybe a little better I would say maybe a little better and it might be the fact that you had like Uno in there and it felt like it was more hard-hitting this better alive just delivered the captain's fall gimmick is one 
that I not only desperately wish Dragon Gate would bring back, I think it's a gimmick that should be used by other wrestling companies. I think an AEW or an ROH could do a lot of great things with that idea. The, the, the last Captain's Fall match I remember was Monster Express versus the Millennials and I think March right. of 2014. So it has been a long time since they've done that. I really wish they'd bring that back. And in the main event, it would be on my short list of all-time Dreamgate matches. It's one that actually, I remember the first time I watched it, I did not love the match because I was very new to Dragon Gate at this point. And that was one of the first like Dreamgate matches that I had seen because what you know what makes headlines with Western fans when it comes to Dragon Gate? It's, it's the six-mans, the nine-man tags, and the spots, and this and that. And this was my first time, or one of my first times at least, watching a prolonged 25-minute main event. And I just wasn't feeling it because it was, you know, kind of grappling-based. Well, that's not why I thought I liked this promotion. And then I, I saw it, you know, probably a year later. I was like, oh, my God, you know, Masaki Mochizuki is the best. And every time I rewatch this match, I've seen probably five or six times now. And it just continues, continues to deliver. But, Mike, there was a show a week later in Cork and Hall, a show that I have never seen that you were – essentially bragging to me before we came on the air about how good it was. <laughs> May, 12th, yeah. May 12th, 2011, Cork and Hall. Uh, we start King of Gate 2011, where you see the King of Gate matches of Yasushi Kanda defeating Masato Yoshino, Dragon Kid defeating Pac. There's a six-man tag. I'm sorry, there's also a King of Gate match with Cyber Kong defeating Gamma. I think my mind purposefully skipped over that for just a second because god that sounds bad a 12 minute singles match between those two uh the semi-main was shima naruki doi and ricochet against bb hulk yokosuka and super shisa and the main event king of gate 2011 first round a block masaki mochizuki defeated shingo takagi by ko in 18 minutes mike i, I you know me the 2015 match i think is one of the 10 greatest matches of all time but I haven't seen the 2011 match. Now I feel like a poser. I think I, I, I'm going to go through my archives, you know, my, I, I have to go like into the closet that like mist comes out of. And I have to go through my binder and go through like my hard drive list and say this and, and get you this match. Cause it's, this is a really cool show. This is when they did King of Gate in 2011. This was still when they did a knockout format, which is like how they did this year's. And it just was something that, like, from what made tape of the show, it was all, like, pretty solid stuff, and especially this Mochizuki versus Shingo Takagi match where they played off a match they had much earlier, 2009, I believe, that that might have been at Gate of Destiny that year, and that they had they, they played off a, a KO thing from that. That was really kind of cool, and that was really kind of rad. And then it just was, like, one of those shows that really at this time, like, top to bottom on the show, save Cyber Kong versus Gam in 12 minutes – you pretty much just had like great stuff like Conda at this time was like still really kind of pushing in a way. And then dragon kid versus pack. And then of course the tag team that was made for me, Mariah Sapa versus <laughs> Raiwa. Like that's that that's incredibly my kind of thing. It's just was like one of those shows that's like so big. And it's also one of those things that we are really starting to see like everything forming because we are now, I will say about four weeks out from the most important Cork and Hall show of this time period. And it's crazy that we won't even get to that on this episode. That comes a few weeks from now, but I, I should note 
after the main event, Blood Warriors attacked Mochizuki. Yoshino came out to help him, but they were once again overwhelmed by the Blood Warriors numbers. And, and I should note these translations and these notes come from the defunct iHeartDG site, but you can still find it uh, through Web Archive. Uh, so Blood Warriors overwhelms Mochizuki and Yoshino, and this brought out Kamikaze, led by Yamato, and they end up facing off, uh, but more importantly, Shingo Takagi and BB Hulk, who were at this point on the same side, face off, and Mochizuki defused their situation, forced them to shake hands, and he said that the enemy was now Blood Warriors, and that's where they should focus. Blood Warriors came back and said, you know, Horiguchi challenged Takagi and Hulk to come after the Twin Gate belts. Shima stepped up and called out any trio to come and face him, uh, Kanda and Naruki Doi, and both challenges were accepted for next month at Cork and Hall. So we're building to June 8th, 2011, with the idea of Yamato, Masaki Mochizuki, and Masaru Yoshino against Shima, Naruki Doi, and Yasushi Kanda, and Ryo Saito and Genki Horiguchi versus Shingo Takagi and BB Hulk. Keep that in mind as we go along in this timeline because those might drastically change. And then, Mike, we got a big announcement on May 13th. I sent you a message about this, and you said you vividly remember reading what. So, at this time, and something that Dragon Gate did pretty much up until, like, 2018, they would have basically bulletin boards where... On the Dragon Gate website, each stable would have a bulletin board. So you would have, like, World 1 bulletin board. You'd have a Kamikaze bulletin board. Everyone, Warriors bulletin board. And there would be some stuff that would happen there, but it also was, like, a good way to, like, kind of push storylines and also do, like, updates. Like, Dragon Gate wrestlers have had, like, blogs pretty much since, like, 2005, where a lot of them are kind of what they now do on Twitter, where, like, where, like you always see, like, Masaki Mochizuki with, like, a gym selfie and then saying, like, I had a really tough... Uh, workout today but must keep on fighting bitter smile it was stuff like that mostly <laughs> but sometimes you would have some really big things there were some big things happening when italian connection broke up that happened over the bolton board but shingo takagi posted on the 13th so right after this cork and show that kamikaze was finished and he made this decision after losing the mochizuki he did so with the consent of all members but kong shingo and yamato decided that they will co- cooperate with the uh, mochizuki unit for now Kakatora and Kong were unaffiliated, and then Awasa decided to take a step back from the front lines as he sheds his ring rust. I mean, Awasa was actually other than uh, other than uh, Shingo Takagi, like the longest tenure member of Kamikaze. He just retired in the middle of it and came back. And then they said, by doing this, they basically said, "All right, so Shingo and Yamato, the two big guys, are going to go join Mochi- Mochizuki Army." Kakatora and Kong. We don't know what they're up to. Awasa is going to be basically wrestling in openers. And then at the same time, there were posts about how Dragon Kid lost that match in his hometown because Aichi is in, because he's from Aichi. He's a Nagoya native. And they made a big deal about how he blew the match there. And there was like a big confrontation because you had a, a match with him and Pac that kind of like really kind of like, kind of like going over. And it kind of seemed that like, is Dragon Kid taking this super seriously? And then, of course, the biggest thing going out of this show, of course, was Hulk and Shingo Takagi teaming on the same side from the first time since 2008. And then on May 14th, 2011, a Sapporo Tension Hall double shot. Uh, I'll read down this full card because it's action-packed. The May 14th, 2011 show is Dragon Kid, Gamma, and Ricochet defeating Pac, Super Shisa, and Tomokamai. 
Uh, King of Gate 2011 first round B-block action. Yamato and Don Fuji went to a double ring out. In their first match, they had a rematch where Yamato ended up pinning him with a cradle in a very fun match. Also a very fun match, Shima defeating Susumu Yokosuka in 15 minutes. This match ruled. I was very happy to go back and rewatch this. Masaki Mochizuki and Masato Yoshino, they defeated Shingo Takagi and Cyber Kong and then your double main events. Uh, Ryo Saito defeated his twin gate partner Genki Horiguchi and BB Hulk defeated Naruki Doi. As for the notes on this show, it should be noted that after the opener, Blood Warriors attacked and Mochizuki Army made the save. Mochizuki turned to Tomokamai, said it was always embarrassing to lose in your own hometown like he did today, but still he was impressed by the youngster. He invited him to the new unit, but Tomokamai declined, saying he wasn't ready yet. Mochizuki respected that and turned his attention to Super Shisa. Shisa quickly said that he had been waiting for the invitation and happily accepted, so he is now aligned with the Mochizuki army. And then Takagi confirmed his allegiance to the Mochizuki army after his tag match with Mochizuki and Yoshino. Mochizuki then turned to Cyber Kong, and Kong refused the handshake, and he said that Mochizuki only got Takagi and Yamato by force. If you wanted Kong, you would have to beat him in their King of Gate match the next day, which leads us to May 15th, 2011. Once again, Sapporo, uh, where Don Fuji defeated Takuya Tomomakai. Super Sisa defeated Ryo Saito, Yamato and Shingo defeated Naruki Doi and Gamma, Genki Horiguchi defeated Susumu Yokosuka, and King of Gate, Masaki Mochizuki did indeed defeat Cyber Kong, and then the main event, another Open the Triangle Gate match, Shima, Dragon Kid, and Ricochet defeated Masato Yoshino, BB Hulk, and Pac, but Mike, all hell broke loose after this May 15th, 2011 show, where do you want to start in these notes as to what transpired on this show? Well, I think pretty much it's worth noting that this is back when they ran uh, Sapporo when they're in Tyson Hall. This was like the big venue for everyone who wasn't running like the bigger gyms that New Japan would later run that shut down and kind of started all the big problems with people have running in Sapporo to this day that like three venues have now closed down. Dragon Gate was going to was going to have a show at a tennis hall that they rented over over May, because this is usually they do their double shot in May that became a triple shot because they would have to justify going up there if they sold enough tickets, and then the one in, in December. Now it's like to the center here. It's like this is like during like the peak of like companies going to Sapporo, but really like getting to the notes itself, this is a big, big moment, and I think it's just better just to dive in to it, to it right after the main event. Yeah, so uh, after the main event, uh, the Mochizuki team came out. Kid went to throw uh, the wind back in their face, calling them the trash of Drangi. He tried to close with the ooh pose. The other Blood Warriors members didn't join in, though. Doi jumped him, leading a Blood Warriors assault, and Dragon Kid was ejected from the group. I should also note that Cyber Kong, after his match with Mochizuki, admitted defeat and still said he had a lot to learn from Mochizuki, and they shared an embrace. So after Blood Warriors kicks out Dragon Kid, they say they weren't finished there. Shima asked Metal Warrior from the Dead or Alive show to remove his mask, and he did to reveal a new look for Takuya Tomokamai. He had shaved the letter T into his hair and now wore face paint. Horiguchi introduced him as the newest Blood Warriors member, now named Tomahawk T. 
NXT. And if that wasn't enough, Shima announced yet another member, Cyber Kong, the man who embraced Mochizuki after their match. He came to the ring, attacked Dragon Kid. Mochizuki jumped in and confronted Kong about betraying him less than a half hour after they embraced. Kong replied <laughs> that teaming with Mochizuki would be dreadfully boring, and Blood Warriors left. So Dragon Kid recovers. He thanks Team Mochizuki for the rescue. He gave a massive hug to Yoshino, who wondered what the heck he was doing. Kid said he was mistaken. Blood Warriors were the real trash of Drangit. Mochizuki asked if he would help stop them and recruited him to his unit. So in short, open the Dreamgate champion Masaki Mochizuki. He moves on to the King of Gate semifinals. Blood Warriors tied the record for most Triangle Gate defenses. However, Dragon Kid was kicked out of the group and the belt had to be vacated. Toma Makai becomes Tomahawk TT, much easier to say, and he joins Blood Warriors. Cyber Kong joins Blood Warriors as well, and Dragon Kid is kicked out of Blood Warriors. So this is, like, how we were saying, like, things are starting to accelerate, especially now with we have the two sides. We have Mochizuki Army. We have Blood Warriors. We've already had the dissolution of both uh, uh, World 1 and Kamikaze. And now we've seen where nearly everyone from those units have gone. Uh, This is, like, one of the longest stints that Dragon Kid was ever a heel ended. So it was, like, five months that Dragon Kid was a very awkward heel that just never worked. It was something that was always kind of remarkable seeing him kind of like join in on stuff like this. It's like Dragon Kid, this isn't this isn't who you are. You're just trying to press the popular kids out here. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. And then Tomahawk TT was a really really wild look. So now he will later be T Hawk, but pretty much this is very similar to his, to like his completed gimmick. He comes out. He has like his head is all crazy. He has face paint on. It's like this red and blue like smudge across his face. He wears, like, rubber arm gloves that, like, he was supposed to be, like, a chopping machine and wearing tights. It just was a very weird look. And then, yeah, Cyber Kong joined, like, that, okay, Cyber Kong. But, like, really at this point, we now have Blood Warriors, with the exception of stuff that will be happening very soon, pretty much crystallizing into, like, how they are kind of as, like, this huge heel unit. Of course, you have Brody Lee, who was not on this tour. You had Austin Aries, who never came over. But you, you basically had like Shima, Doi, you had you had Kanda, you had Marahai Sapa, you had uh you had Ricochet, you had Cyber Kong, and you had Naoki Tanizaki, and then now you've added Cyber Kong and Tomahawk TT to it, and then really we'll, we'll see some changes coming up at least in a couple of weeks when we talk about the big June Corkin show, but then we're really starting to see like the big bulk of uh, Junction Three. So we we've already talked about last week how. Rich Swan was kind of affiliated with this unit already during this weekend of shows, but you had Mochizuki leading it as champion. You had Shingo, Yamato, and Yoshino, these three big six members, at the forefront there as well. Then you had Dragon Kid joining it. You already had Susumi Yokosuka, Pac, and also you now have Dragon Kid joining the unit, and we're going to see a lot more members kind of moving. And an interesting group of people, so we've mainly been focusing on these people, but just so you all can get a sense of where the company stood at this point, this left about 10 people without a unit. You had Kagatora, who re- who was a member of Kamikaze. He was heavily recruited by both Kamikaze and Warriors and decided to go Kamikaze. You had Tozawa, who at that time, people were like wondering, like, okay, Akira Tozawa, like he's, I think they've at this time already announced the fact that the weekend's upcoming will be his final weekends in PWG. So everyone was like, okay, they're tying up the loose ends there. 
Casey, who was out for a while, he was not affiliated. He was previously affiliated. He was out for a long time because he was affiliated originally with like Deep Drunkers. So like he was out for a long time there. Kanez, who was not at the forefront. Owasa, who we talked about earlier, who's moving out the front lines. Don Fuji, who has not been affiliated pretty much since the end of uh, Blood Generation. And then you had Arai, again, since Deep Drunkers not been affiliated. And Katoka, who was a member of World 1, but was the junior member. He was the lost post being on the outside as well. And then you have, of course, Kamada, who, you know, he's going to see out the outside to begin with. But it's a real interesting time. This is kind of like Sapporo shows were really interesting at this time. And you, we were starting to see like a King of Gate where you have a champion who's kind of just been like this leading a war, but also leading it from the front, going being the first semifinalist and really presenting itself to a very interesting King of Gate semifinals that we would start getting into what happened at the Shinjuku Face Show. Yeah, May 17th, Tokyo Shinjuku Face. Uh, King of Gate matches, BB Hulk defeated Ryo Saito. And in the main event, Shima defeated Yamato, and we also have movement on the unit front as Mochizuki invited both Kagatora and Don Fuji to join the Mochizuki army. Kagatori essentially said, what took you so long? Of course I'm in. Don Fuji, however, gave a surprising thanks but no thanks and said he wanted to focus on training and developing, and he doesn't say it, but I think he means torturing the rookies. Uh, so <laughs> they agreed that once the war with Blood Warriors was over, that the Mochi, Mochi Fuji team would team again. But for now, uh, Kagatora joins the Mochizuki army and Don Fuji gives it the Drake meme, no thanks. And that leads us to Osaka gym number two, the prefectural gym, May 21st, 2011, the King of Gate finals. First, we had the B-Block semifinals with BB Hulk defeating Shima in 10 minutes to move on. And then the A-Block semifinals, or I guess the finals, Yasushi Kanda defeating Open the Dreamgate champion Masaki Mochizuki. And then in the main event, King of Gate Finals 2011, BB Hulk defeats Yasushi Kanda with a Phoenix Splash after the match. Hulk celebrated his win to a mild fan reaction. He acknowledged it, saying he would have been better in Sapporo. He then took a light jab at Shingo about his first round loss before reaffirming their team for Corkin. Then he turned to Mochizuki and made a customary post-King of Gate win Dreamgate Challenge. Mochizuki said that by winning, Hulk did have qualifications for a title match, but he quickly changed the subject and praised Yasushi Kanda, seemingly offering him a title shot. Kanda said he would strip the belt right off his waist. Mochizuki then told Hulk to come up with an appropriate place for his challenge. Hulk wondered what all that meant since he seemed since he seemed to have given the next shot to Yasushi Kanda, which was a very strange move. Yeah, yeah, this was like one of those like really weird King of Gate finals where like one Kanda being in the finals, he's Heavily pushed, as we talked about in this timeline. But Hulk wins. It was a very, uh, I mean, this was not like an affirming one for BB Hulk. Not a great like, match either. King... No, 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 no. I mean, it was really kind of a sleazy match. And, you know, we're starting to see things here that his reasoning and how out of place he was in Mochizuki Army was very relevant. And it's still something like Kanda getting the first challenge is, or getting the next challenge before Hulk, other than obviously that would set up a match at Kobe World that year just kind of weird and it's still kind of weird to me to this day even like rereading the thing and watching everything that happened this time just like a very awkward thing like hulk was like going like i would like to have my title shot i am king of gate i'm the number one fighter i deserve a title shot and the mochizuki said like yeah you won but uh i want to face kanda and that was it and it just was like <laughs> one of those things that 
not very Mochizuki thing for him to do. Like Mochizuki's, I mean, he's a fighter's fighter. He'll take on all challengers, but him doing a sidestep there, other than saying I like, there's a way probably they could have phrased it that would make a lot more sense. I guess like saying, hey, I want to face you, but I've been meaning to face Konda or the better face for us to face would be at Kobe world. But until then I'm a fighting champion. Konda, you've deserted a title shot. Like there's a way you could have done this and not have it be so awkward, but it's something that plays into the next few weeks. So it makes sense for that. Mike, there are two shows left on the timeline. One of them is the May 27th Kobe Sambo hall show, but the important show is the May 23rd zero one show where Dreamgate champion Masaki Mochizuki traveled to zero one in Corken Hall, and he defeated, quote, the rookie supernova Daichi Hashimoto. Now, we meant to talk about Hashimoto a few shows back, and it just got lost with all of the stuff we were doing, but this is 2011, and this is peak Daichi Hashimoto hours, where, you know, in, in 2009, he debuts in a kickboxing exhibition match on a zero one show, and then... March 6, 2011, 0-1 in, uh, in uh, Sumo Hall. He loses to Masahiro Chono in his pro debut. Three weeks later, same building, now All Japan. He loses to Keiji Muto on an All Japan Sumo Hall show. A few days later, he loses teaming with Shinjiro Otani against Big Van Vader and his son, Jesse White. And then in, on May 23rd, Cork and Hall, Masaki Mochizuki kicked this kid's head off. But Mike, this is Daichi Hashimoto's arguable peak. I mean, what was it like in 2011 having to deal with a rookie supernova, Daichi Hashimoto? Yeah, this is something that I'm going to catch flack and actually at me at Fujihei about this. You know how much I don't like people on mentions? No, I, I, I know them on the, the path of history and the path of right. Uh, Zero One really put a lot of hopes on Daichi Hashimoto being Senya Hashimoto's son, one of the biggest stars of New Japan at that period, one of the Three Musketeers. And they set him up in a way where he faces one of the Three Musketeers in Chono. He faces the other one in Muto. They like both make like a big thing of like, oh, he is our sworn brother's son, so we will help parent him. We will help bring him along the way of wrestling. And he adapted moves from like he started doing like a shining wizard, forgot the Chono move he started doing. And then Zero One, in a lot of ways, like makes perfect sense on how you book this. Like this kid is going to be in their minds, like this is gonna be the guy that like takes Zero One from being this afterthought that's just like scrounging to make sure that it still exists. And we we have our next generation here. We have the son of the founder of Zero One. Like and they even had him like come out and look, he looked even more like his dad at that time. He, like, he had, like, the, instead of having the black and red, like, Elvis pants, he had, like, shorts, and he had the headband on, and, like, they were really, really doing it up even more so than he does now, and Masaki Mochizuki was someone that, through his relationship with Otani, he was, like, we're gonna have another champion come in here, another person that was not, like, a member of this, and was not, like, at the peak, but has, like, relationships through this, and especially since Daichi is much smaller than his dad ever was, it made sense that, like, Masaki Mochizuki basically coming in and doing this match was a big thing because, like, even at this time, like, Dragon Gate was seen as, like, the juniors promotion. So, Daichi being a junior heavyweight at that time, going up against the champion of the juniors promotion. And then he would take, I think he actually took the Senkaku Gary to the face as a move that he started to do for a while, too. So, this was, like, a big time. Like, there's a reason why, like, for how he pushed and, like, putting him in, like, in these matches where he didn't, 
he did not look out of place in these matches. That's the wild thing. Where, like when you look at Daichi Hashimoto and in twenty twenty, or like he, and then if you're someone who's like been around long enough, especially like watched a lot of Shinya Hashimoto. In case you know, I'm not big about like being like someone that's like you didn't see it at the time, you don't know what it is. This is something that you actually do need to understand the the context and know why a lot of people are always so kind of like shrugged towards Daichi Hashimoto or shake their head because he was presented as like the golden one. The prince that was promised to zero one, and we see now over the last nine years. I mean, the fact that he left zero one to begin with is a huge thing, and the fact he ended up in Big Japan is an even bigger thing. And this is kind of the peak of Daichi Hashimoto's relevance in the wrestling community. Other than like when he looked like he was going to come into New Japan, there was that, and then he broke his arm. That, that's the thing. So. This is not the last time we will talk about Daichi Hashimoto because I think his no. his errant New Japan Wrestle Kingdom appearance needs to be discussed when we hit that. And the timeline, but we finally we finally wrap up this extended Japan notes portion. May twenty seventh, Kobe Sambo Hall. Uh, KZ returned at the start of the show in a humble speech, saying that he was going to return to the ring and that he would be restarting with the next shows at first. And then main event, Naniwa elimination style match, where Cyber Kong faced off with all four of his opponents in an arm wrestling challenge, and he easily beat them to gain the man advantage in the main event. But the match was Masaki Mochizuki, Yamato, Dragon Kid, and Masato Yoshino defeating Shima Naruki Doi, Cyber Kong, and Gamma. Notably, 19 minutes into the match, the first elimination was Dragon Kid defeating Shima. And then 10 minutes later, right before the half hour mark, Masaki Mochizuki pinned Naruki Doi to gain the victory. It should be noted that Blood Warriors were seconded by a new Metal Warrior for the main event. And Shima, after the match, seemed to be at odds with Blood Warriors, especially after his quick el- elimination. After the match, Doi said that there was another Blood Warriors shift change uh, that was coming today. And someone was going to be kicked out of the group, and that person was Shima. Blood Warriors attacked him. Gamma told him he was out of Blood Warriors and that he should just leave Dragon Gate. He took that to heart a few years later. At this point, Metal Warrior blasted Gamma with a Singapore cane. The Shima portion was a trick, and Blood Warriors attacked Gamma, kicking him out of the unit. Metal Metal Warrior revealed himself to be none other than KZ, so so much for that humble new beginning. KZ will replace Gamma and Blood Warriors. Shima confirmed his exile, but added that by the time they returned to Kobe, there may be more, and a disgraced Gamma was left alone in the ring. He bowed to all four sides of the hall, and that is how we leave the Japan timeline, unless Mike has anything else to add on this show. Yeah, the Nanawa match ruled. Like, (laughs) it's something that, like, we'll be saying this a lot, like, Dragon Gate... Like, Aaron Bentley has this great point, I believe, about War Games matches. That War Games matches can only be failed. There is a formula to them. And if you stick to the formula, it's always a great match. And it always, like, reaches the expectations as that one expects. It's the fact that when War Games matches nowadays never stick to that formula, it always looks like trash. Elimination matches. There is a way to do elimination matches. Dragon Gate understands how to do these elimination matches. They understand how to do this. And this Nanawa elimination match, which is a standard elimination match, it was over the top rope, pinfall, or submission. Like, it's not a complicated match. They call it Nanawa because they started doing it, I believe, in... Like, it was like a reference, I think, actually, to Grand Nanawa originally. And then they started calling it Yoshida because Yoshida, Takashi Yoshida, Cyber Kong, defeated everyone in the arm wrestling contest. And the idea about it is that you have, like, something that happened ahead of time, so someone's going to be at a disadvantage. And... Interesting that Shima was the first fall in the two first big, like, unit warfare matches. Like, that's something that was not really picked up on then, but something to worth make a point of. 
he took the first fall and the and the uh loser revives uh Kevin's fall match at Dead or Alive and he takes the first fall in the Nanawa match in in uh, Kobe. So, interesting stuff. KZ immediately gets back into it and you you know it's something that we are now like this thing. This is I think also in Doi story like the 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 winds of change are ha- are coming to Dragon Gate. That line that he has and that's kind of like one of his big catchphrases really started at this time. Like that's like the other just like ephemera note to to bring up at this point. And with that, nearly an hour into the show, we are now ready to talk about <laughs> Dragon USA. But that was that was needed because there is a ton of stuff that will factor into not only this triple shot, but especially when Dragon USA returns to the Midwest for the next triple shot. We the promotion looks entirely different. But as for Uprising 2011, June 4th, 2011, I should note that on March 8th, this show was announced that Dragon USA was heading to Long Island and specifically the NYWC Sportatorium in Deer Park, New York. Gabe says this is a made-for-wrestling venue with a great atmosphere. I don't know about that, but what I do know, (laughs) what I do know is that on April 22nd, and Mike, this is something you thought United Finale was maybe the last televised pay-per-view. I said, no, 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 you're wrong. It's open the ultimate gate. Well, as it turns out, it was actually this show, as DGUSA will tape its next cable pay-per-view on June 4th in Long Island. This means fans can make their summer trip to New York City to see two Unique Dragon USA shows on June 4th and June 5th. The freestyle has become a signature DGUSA match for its insane, one-of-a-kind action, and the Long Island event will have a freestyle theme. So we'll talk about that more as we go along in the show. And it was announced on April 29th that the initial main event for this show was Pac versus Ricochet versus Chuck Taylor. As we talked about last week, Chuck Taylor had to pull out of those weekend shows due to a groin injury. So Rich Swan, who was initially in the opening freestyle, was then put into the main event freestyle. So the main event of this show, Pac, Ricochet, Rich Swan. This uprising show, the last pay-per-view. First off, no attendance is reported. Not even Dave Meltzer has attendance for this show, but sparse is the way I would describe the show <laughs> attendance-wise. Cage match says 682, which seems... Awful convenient. I'm willing to guess that was a third of that. Yeah, that that would be the Japanese number, and I can assure you there is not 682 people in that building. No, there's not. Uh, we open up with a Rich Strong backstage. He's stoked for the night of the freestyle. He's looking to he's looking forward to the main event because he's going to be prove that he's the king of the freestyle. And then he starts beatboxing a little bit because it's Rich Swan. He made he actually made a pretty funny pun about freestyle then freestyle rap. It was good. It was a missed opportunity not to talk about how, you know, Pac is a high flyer, Ricochet is a high flyer, and Rich Swan is more of a Swan-style guy, which that is what we'll be talking about next week, the first style battle. <laughs> missed opportunity there, but that's okay. It was a good promo. However, Rob Naylor made sure to shout that out on the show, which made me very happy. Of course, Rob now is full-time with Lenny Leonard on the call here. We open up with an eight-man freestyle, the first ever eight-man freestyle match as it is Sammy Callahan defeating uh, Alex Colon, Caleb Conley, Flip Kendrick, John Davis, Lewis London, Pinky Sanchez, and Scott Reed. He would score the fall on Caleb Conley with the stretch muffler in 11 minutes and 28 seconds. And right off the bat, this venue sucks. <laughs> it's not. It's not good. It is. When you think. The hard cam was terrible. The hard cam was terrible. When you think about. And it's not entirely apples to apples. I understand that because the second anniversary show is the next show, which is at BB Kings, which is a very respectable venue. But you think about the first year anniversary show. One year ago, one year ago, 
ECW Arena, Brian Danielson versus Shingo Takagi, Kamikaze versus Chikara, this loaded show, this hot arena, and a year later, it's an eight-man freestyle in the NWIC Sportatorium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, how things have come. Uh, this match itself, you, you know how in the past I've been saying, like, this is one of my goals in this rewatch is to reassess John Davis. And John Davis looks really solid in this match yeah. because he's so much yeah, bigger than does. everyone else. <laughs> yeah, he, he does. He does, like... He does like this nuts like six man uh, Tower of Doom power bomb where it's like okay Alex, uh, uh, okay uh, John Davis, you were pretty sweet in this match <laughs> like but you had like a decent like dive sex that led into it and like there was a bad breakup on like I forgot who was the person who did the breakup but when he, like he hits the three seconds around the world and it looks like a really deep near fall but someone like whiffs the breakup of the pinfall and then it leads into the finish and you know. I mean, with how they're booking, it made since Sammy Callahan was getting the fall. They obviously have plans for John Davis, so he stays clean. Uh, Lewis Linden and Flip Kendrick, they're, like, people that don't really get out of the Midwest now, but, like, having them on the show is definitely felt of 2011 to me. Well, that's what I was going to say. I have never and will. I just can't imagine a situation where I would ever say this again. But in this eight-man freestyle, I have to say Flip Kendrick looked pretty damn good. He had, right, a, he yeah. had a good sequence against Scott Reed, which seemed impossible, not not given the individual talents of those two men, but those two coming together seems like a disaster, and they pulled it off. And then, now, I, I will say this, Flip Kendrick looked good, but he did a double moonsault from the uh, top rope to the floor onto a big pile of guys. I don't know for sure. I would have been pissed at Flip Kendrick had I been running this show because they are clearly building up Ricochet as a top guy. That is Ricochet's move. Do not do that move on a show with Ricochet on it. But other than that, it is a really fun match. And you look at, you know, the talent in this match. It's John Davis and Scott Reed, Caleb Conley, Sammy Callahan, Pinky Sanchez. Like, those guys, those five are really solid. Lewis Linden was always a guy I liked. And then, you know, Alex Colon and Flip Kendrick. You know, you can't win them all, but that's okay. I, I, <laughs> I will say, you know, John Davis looked great. Sammy Callahan looked great. Callahan... He submits Caleb Conley with a stretch muffler, but he really just kicked him into submission in the stretch muffler. It's uh, for what it is. It's a mindless spot fest. It's a good match, nowhere near the level of some of the earlier freestyles. But it's a nice three and a quarter star opener. I went two and three quarters. You know, it was one of those things that like botching the finish really takes me out. You know, and and like luckily like for as bad of a person Sammy Callahan is like the the finish worked for it and then yeah like I didn't even put two and two together like I would be so pissed if I was Ricochet if Flip Kendrick just came out in the opening match and did my finish as a just a, a random part in a dive section yeah no like, I was is... I was not not super cool with that because again in the other show Flip you do that dive but you work on the same show as Ricochet that stays in your back pocket. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and especially seeing what the main event finish was. I imagine that Ricochet was like, well, fuck, I guess I have to do this as my finish now. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, post-match, we had probably the greatest backstage promo of all time. It is Misaki Mochizuki. Luckily, we do have subtitles for it where he says that he's mad at both Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan's lack of, lack of respect, and he will kill them with kicks. 30 seconds, completely effective on how Masaki Mochizuki is the baddest man on the planet. 
so good that Matt Seidel posted it to his Instagram story when I tweeted out the caption of Masaki Mochizuki <laughs> saying, translation, I'm going to kill you today by kicking you hard. What a marvelous promo from one of the ten greatest professional wrestlers of all time. Just like a all-timer. Just like, it was one of those things that, like, you posted that promo before I watched the show, and I was like, okay, this is going to happen when this happened. I was like, no, this is even better than just a screenshot. <laughs> like, it is all-time effective. And then we had Tony Nese in his home building versus Brody Lee. Uh, it was one of the big singles. It was like the big match for Anthony Nese at the time. He was a New York a Wrestling Connection guy. He lost to uh, Brody Lee in 9 minutes 52 seconds with a Liger Bomb and a match that I ended up really liking, but you could tell that Brody Lee was in a bad mood because the PA system busted during his entrance. Yeah, this is, I mean, we talked about it at the start of the show of just the phase changes, and we are now, and I, I don't understand why, because for the first year and a half of this promotion, it is not an issue. But we are now at the point in Drangit USA, historians mark this down, where you can no longer understand live promos, where the PA system is shot, microphones don't work. I don't understand why. That is an issue, but it is now an issue. As for the match, I thought it was okay. Uh, I'm very confused by the way they used Tony Nese this weekend because Gabe really hyped him up as like, oh, he's coming in. Like, this is a big deal. And I understand that he's a hometown guy and was, you know, essentially the NYWC ace for years and years at this point, but he's not used for an entire year. After this show, he's not used until they run this building again at the end of 2012. And up to this point, again, he's an NYWC guy and then had wrestled on, on three Evolve shows and had lost all three of his Evolve matches up to this point. So he wasn't like this star. But that just goes to show the evolution of this promotion of at one point it was come see Dragon Kid or Shima or Masaki Mochizuki or BB Hulk or Shingo. And now Gabe is relying on local indie talent to become a bigger draw for the promotion than the Japanese side of things. And I thought Nice played a credible underdog in a fine match. I liked the opener a little bit more, but Mike, you, you seem to be higher on it than I am. Yeah, I went three and a quarter on this because I thought this was like a really effective like local upstart versus monster match. Like they worked this in a very smart way, which especially for someone like Anthony Nice being considered like the upstart going up against someone much bigger than Brody, Brody Lee. That's a wild thing. That happened, and it worked for them. Like, I, like this was not, like, a tremendous... This, if I'm going to talk about, like, touring, like, monster matches or touring champion matches, this isn't on it, but it was a nice thing that I felt like, in a way, it's so weird. Like, I did pull up uh, Nisa's cage match after he mentioned this, and he works more in TNA than he works in DGUSA before he sticks, which is a wild thing to think about. But I thought this was, like, really well done. I thought that Nice looked pretty solid on this. I have no idea why, other than cost, bringing in this guy from New York each weekend. I would have for the next, like, double shots and triple shots. I would have done this. And then they gave him a kick out of the truck stop, which was, like, something that, like, I bit on that. I was like, oh, yeah, no, he's going to he's gonna pin him one, two, three. And then he kicked out of the truck stop and got and got put down by a Liger Bomb. So I thought that that was a thing. And he had to – Brody had to beat him with interference, which was maybe, like, my one, like, other big knock for those matches. It makes Brody look weak. Like, Brody does not need – interference he's the biggest guy in the promotion he's been booked like the biggest guy in the promotion he shouldn't need interference to beat the local upstart yeah Brody's push is something we'll evaluate when he eventually leaves the promotion but I am still firmly in the belief that he is grossly under pushed and underappreciated at this point 
and the promotion. So it's, yeah, it's a very just interesting match. I really like Nice. He's someone that as a whole, like when WWE started signing all of those guys in 2016 and 2017, and Nice was a Cruiserweight Classic guy and is still someone on the roster who I think does his best work in WWE. Now, it'll be interesting to see when we hit 2013 and Nice becomes a, a more regular player how he looks at that point. But I've always looked at Nice as someone who thrives on a 205 Live, or if he was signed 15 years earlier, would have had those velocity matches that were pimped in certain corners of the internet. Like, Nice is not a super worker, never was, and never will be. But when he has just a basic match like this, I think he's very efficient at what he does. Yeah, like, that's the thing. Like, this was basically a framework match, and I feel like that they both succeeded at that match. And it does make it more kind of... uh just like interesting it's like Brody you have Brody Lee here we've seen how good Brody Lee has been since then and I understand why Dragon Gate wasn't make giving him like the absolute monster push but Gabe you had him basically on every single show but in a way like, Dragon Gate was giving him the monster push because he was pinning right. Masaki Mochizuki in Japan like Dragon Gate seemed to be behind Brody more than Dragon Gate USA which just blows my mind yeah, I mean, and that was like I think that was Mochizuki's last fall before he won the Dreamgate title. I believe so. so maybe and this goes back to our notes about how they were building up Masaki Mochizuki post King of Gate 2011. Maybe it was intended to be a Brody Lee title shot. Like that would make sense. Like, oh no, but this guy beat me first. That that would and that then, would have been intriguing. I mean, Brody gets injured right around this time, and I believe he was supposed to go to Japan kind of around Kobe world and that didn't end up, ha- end up happening. He ends up going and I think October of 2011 and said, cause he's got a knee injury that I believe happens on the next show. If not, it happens. It in the Anthony knees match. Okay. So it happens on the next show. Yeah. A Mochizuki Brody Lee Dreamgate match. I mean, God, that seems like something they should have done in Dragon Gate USA. That feels like it could headline a show and Mochizuki is not back until uh, the first show 2012. of 2012. Yeah. You know, so he, that, Man, Brody Lee, just a guy so talented who up until now in AEW has just been wasted by every promotion he's been in, with the exception of maybe Chikara, but I haven't seen enough of that to say for sure. I like, I mean, like, I I was always high on him. Maybe that was because I watched him in Chikara, and, he, and, you know, Chikara, I think, used them best, and they gave him promo time and turned into a great promo, as we all see nowadays. Uh, speaking of promos, he did grab the mic. I was able to make out some of this. This will be a rare thing going forward where Brody is pissed about his theme song. Aries then grabbed the microphone and said, no one could stay in the ring with Blood Warriors. And then there was a super mouthy kid who was getting into it. That was kind of funny. And then Austin Aries says, I'm so far ahead of anyone that I don't need to have help out here. And he sends Blood Warriors to the back, which leads to a singles match with Austin Aries versus Susumi Yokosuka. Susumi Yokosuka defeated Austin Aries in 11, min- in 11 minutes and 59 seconds with the Mugen. And probably like... In a three-star in a match, I gave a gentleman's three, and I say gentleman's three because Susumu Yokosuka has, has become one of my favorite wrestlers to watch in singles matches. This might be like my least favorite Susumu Yokosuka match I've ever seen. It's a rough one, you know. I gave it the gentleman's three as well. That's exactly what it was. Austin Aries and I talked about it last week, and I talked about it the week before, and probably the week before that. I, he's just so like hell bent on doing almost this old school heel thing. In a modern, fast-paced company, and I and I can understand the mindset of, well, everybody's, you know, go, go, go. I got to do something different. 
but in this instance, different is bad, and it's not working. And this was, you know, such a, a simple formula in the sense that Ares was just a big heel, and then Susumu hit what felt like about 10 Jumbo Nokachis throughout the match, and then finally put him away with the Mugen for the Gentleman's Three. But man, I this is just another one. I mean, it's so hard to have a disappointing Susumu Yokosuka match, and Austin Aries and Dragon USA found a way. And I'll tell you what the reason was. Austin Aries did not take it out of second gear. No, you could see no, no, no. like you could you could see visible frustration on Susumu Yokosuka during this match. Like, <laughs> and that's to the a, extent that's where a he... Dragon guy working in America, and he's saying, "Let's pick up the pace a little bit." <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's just like, what are you? What are we doing here? And one thing I would like to point out as a very big positive, Lenny and Rob do do an update about Blood Warriors and Junction 3, describing the situation, describing Susumu Yokosuka's situation here. And I feel like with Junction 3 and Blood Warriors, I thought that was an exceptional thing to do. I think these two guys, in a very complicated time in the company, as we spent an hour talking about how complicated it was, I feel like they did an excellent job with that. Like, I thought that was tremendous. But Aries obviously didn't want to be here. And Susumu's frustrated and trying to do what he can. He kind of just goes like, oh, I'm just going to clothesline you to death because that should make you want to do stuff. And it didn't. <laughs> it didn't at all. And then it was like he took like the war. Like, I think Aries almost sandbagged him on the Mugen too. Like, he did not. Because usually in the Mugen, you get pulled up all the way up to the shoulders and he slams you down to the side. He goes up like halfway. Like, looks like he's about to take a power driver. Like, he's not going to go all the way up. And then Susumu just does like this. And then Susumu like leaves per- perplexed. It was a probably one of my like least favorite three star matches I think I've ever seen. <laughs> to be honest, like it's a competent match. It's just you watch this match and you're like, it. If you've not watched this show as we're recording this and you're what you're listening to this and then you're gonna go watch this match, keep an eye on Susumu in this match because you can watch a guy going, "What is this asshole doing here?" The entire match. I did not notice the sandbagging on the finish, although I wholeheartedly believe you that that happened. I did notice Aries badly under-rotate on a 450 splash that I think he's oh, done before where, like, he doesn't want to take that full, like, face bump when he misses the 450, so he does a thing where he lands on his feet, but it just looks bad. It's He, he went uh, ass over tea kettle, and he landed uh, on his ass. God, it's such, a, it's such a weird match, but you are right. Lenny and Naylor together is such an awesome pairing where you can tell they both understand and appreciate uh, the Dragon System style. They know the storytelling in Japan. They obviously know the storytelling in front of them. And they bring just a level of excitement and like energy to the promotion that it desperately needed at this time. That for as good as Chikara-san was, the overt professionalism that they tried to implement on really those first four shows... It just wasn't, it's not that promotion. Again, they can't even get entrance music to play. You can't get microphones to work. Let's have Lenny and Naylor be excited about what they call instead. And they accomplish that to the fullest extent. And it's just something that, like, especially with someone like Rob having him in the booth, like, I, I do fully believe that Joe Sposto is a good commentator. Like, I've liked him before and after Chikara. It's just, this Naylor hits the vibe, like, in a certain way that... I can see them like confidently talking about it, but not talking about it in the level of enthusiasm that we had here. And I think that that was a in the commentary in that regard, like, hey, they brought this thing happening in Japan is my favorite part of this match. That tells you what kind of match it is. And I, I, I don't like to be a dead horse, but this match, disappointing. And then we had another sign at the Times promo afterwards is DUF is drinking and smoking in the backyard <laughs> there in the docks. 
they were only lit by lights, which made them look kind of red, which is actually kind of a nice little thing, but it just was, you know, smoking in the boys' room, smoking in the boys' room. And they say it's going to be a DUF night, and that led to the second four-way freestyle, the second freestyle night. This was a four-way freestyle. Shima versus Johnny Gargano versus Masato Yoshino versus Yamato. This is a thing where I know this match was set up before uh, both uh, Kamikaze and World 1 disbanded, so you'd have Blood Warriors versus Ronin versus World 1 versus uh, 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 Kamikaze, but now you're like, oh. So we have Shima versus Johnny Gargano, who's against Shima, and then Yoshino and Yamato, who have united against Yoshino, or against Shima in this match. Shima won from Meteora in 12 minutes and 16 seconds on Yamato, and interesting match like just like having this match i'm like this is the night of the freestyle but having at least the three japanese guys in there with johnny gargano is just kind of a wild thing so you talked just a second ago about maybe the disinterest of austin aries and how that visibly frustrated yokosuka well in this match masato yoshino seemed to want no part of this match structure (laughs) <laughs> this is the first time, and, and, and we'll talk about it, especially in 2012, when Yoshino eventually says, I don't want to come to America anymore. Yoshino is checked out in this match. He does essentially the greatest hits and then just hangs out, whereas Shima brings the heat in this match, and Shima in particular destroys Johnny Gargano on a few moves, and then, you know, Schwein's and Meteora's Yamato for the finish, it's a disjointed match. The pacing of it and just the structure of it, where like guys are trying to form alliances mid-match and then they're broken up, but they don't really get that idea over of like you know I'll use you uh, for my benefit in, in a second and then turn on you the next second. Like that idea wasn't necessarily fully realized if I understood what they were trying to do. But the individual por- performances from Shima and Gargano were really, really impressive in this match. Yeah, it's something where, like, Shima did not mail it in at all. And it's such, like, a thing where, like, you can tell how much Shima likes working in America, and you can see Yoshino being like, okay, I just went through my first, like, title reign. I'm doing, like, all this stuff here. He does, like, find a way to do his uh, sliding apron drop kick from a more preposterous distance each night. Maybe that's how... It keeps his enthusiasm up, you know? That's the only thing he's got going for him right now. But, like, I'll I'll say this. I did not key into Yoshino's disinterest as much as you did. But it is something in retrospect. Like, yeah, no, Yoshino did not really want to deal with this. (laughs) You know, like, Yoshino's like, I'm going to saw Yoshino. I don't need to deal with this. And I went three and a half stars. It's a weird match. It's definitely, like, a fun, weird little match. And Shima, like, rocking Yamato and then cutting a promo saying he's coming after the Freedom Gate and he hates... Masada, uh, Shima hates Long Island, which, you know, I don't think that's a unpopular opinion around some parts. It was a face so. turn, quite honestly. It was Shima becoming a baby face by saying he doesn't like to be in Long Island. More power to him. Yeah, like, so what, where, where did you end up in this match? Like, I went three and a half stars, and I feel like I might be a little generous on it. No, I went three and a half as well. I When I watched okay. the match at first, I gave it three and a quarter, and as I was sitting here prepping for this show right before we got on this call, I was looking back at my notes, I was like, no, man, I I really liked that match. Shima, you know, Shima was really good, at it, and then again, he pins Yamato, the Freedom Gate champion, and to go back to Lenny and Naylor, they do a really good job of getting the idea over that Shima just pinned the champion. 
obviously they'll have their singles match you know, four or five shows from now, or I guess three or four shows from now. But really, really strong performance from Shima Gargano and the commentators. Yeah, no, I felt like that that was a a a thing that again this stretch of the show and this is a stretch really where things get a little dire here. It was kind of nice to see him do that. WWN live promo. Then we had Alex Reynolds versus the Greek God Papadon, where this is a match that there's no information on match time on cage match. And at least I'll say this: it was a short match. Uh, Reynolds defeated Papadon with like a fisherman buster to the knee and a two star. Like okay, we're in your arena, so we're going to use your two guys match. But Papadon is a figure that he has a long history though, and it's kind of funny. But yeah, Alex Reynolds made his uh, DGUSA premiere on this match. Fucking Papadon, man. Come on. The great god, Papadon. Now, I will say, I looked at his cage match. I thought he had way more Dragon USA matches than he did. He only has this show and then... And another one. And then when they return to this building in 2012. So it's not that bad. But fucking Papadon, come on. I don't... This is not why I did the series. I, I did not sign up for this. I don't want to watch this man wrestle ever. And at least the match was short. But this is, in a more serious point, this is what we talked about at the beginning of the show. This match has no business being on the main card. I understand it's a post-intermission deal. Hometown guys, Gabe, put it on your fucking bonus card. Let the let the golden ring... DGUSA fans watches the Golden Circle fans rather like this being sandwiched in between a match with Shima Yamato and Yoshino and then Masaki Mochizuki in the following match is no business being anywhere near the main show. It's ridiculous. Two stars and it two stars and it's one of those things that I know that Papadon's the Greek god, and Shima, of course, loves Greece, but come on. Come on, man. Fucking Papadon, I don't want to do this. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> don't don't make me do Him this. Him and Shima post on each other, or when I was on Facebook, those two guys loved talking about Greece on Facebook, and Shima talking about starting promotion in Greece, and Papadon was like, I'll be there. And Shima's like, hell yeah, buddy. Let's do our promotion in Greece. Is that when, <laughs> when, uh, when Stronghearts doesn't get picked up by the Ledette promotion, is that is that the next option? Is it goes from you know she was kind of changing the wrestling world with these chinese acrobats you know they're going to be a big deal to maybe the chinese acrobats will wrestle in a grease promotion <laughs> i mean and if that happens uh a lindeman a t-hawk that's your sign guys like seriously <laughs> if that happens we'll cover it i don't know what the what the immigration laws are like there i don't know if it's easier to get people from china or cambodia into greece but oh boy, uh, just, <laughs> well, well, that, that's, back in that's an entire ball that I don't want to unravel of the Papadon Shima OWE connection that unfortunately <laughs> seems scarily realistic. I am not mentally prepared for that conversation. And I can get into big trouble for what I could talk about right now. So let's move on to Johnny Gargano backstage. How about that case? We're going to talk about Johnny Gargano. Yeah, actually, I, I do, because I think this was a really good promo where he says he was so close to getting Yamato to tap out. And the moment that he's talking about at the match, he has Yamato locked into the Gargano escape, and then Shima springboard drop kicks this man into another dimension. It was such a beautiful move. Uh, but, you know... Swan and Gargano really think that Gargano can beat Yamato, and it is the first seed planted 
in the Gargano versus Yamato storyline that we'll see a lot more of as the year goes on. Very effective promo. Really liked it. Yeah, no. And Rick Swan, you know, he's really like being a good solid friend here. You know, he's like, no, yeah, and I'm going to win the main event. And Gargano's like, yeah, buddy, I believe in you too. And it was like a very, like, making a lim- turning lemons into lemonade given, like, Chuck Taylor, your big promo force is not there. And I thought, I was like, okay, this is a solid little thing. It was like, other than Masaki Mochizuki threatening murder via kicking, this was the most effective promo in the night. Speaking about murder via kicking, then we had Masaki Mochizuki versus Eric Cannon. He defeated him with a Sakaku Gary to the head. It was a pulling up the match time because I looked up Papadon's cage match because that's what the show has brought me to. It was a, it was a nine-minute match. I went three and a half stars because it's Masaki, Mochizuki, Eric Cannon beating the crap out of each other to match. You know, this is like they just went at it for like nine minutes and it just sucks that the crowd was not into it at all. It, man, it's funny you say that because I had it three and a half as well, but I thought, man, the crowd does not care about this, which was a they real don't. bummer because, uh, look, I you know, I like DUF at this point. Now... Midwest, yeah. Midwest triple shot coming up. Things might change, <laughs> but for now, things will change. For now, man, I like DUF because Callahan, especially Callahan, but Eric Cannon and Callahan together are presented not like mall goth dorks, but rather like real ass kickers that just so happen to like to drink, and it's it's really effective and. You know, Callahan, I knew, especially 2011 Callahan, would bring it against Mochizuki. Wasn't as positive uh, that Eric Cannon could hold his own in the ring against the Open the Dreamgate champion. But I'll be damned, Eric Cannon looked really good in this match. I had a lot of fun watching this. Yeah, this is like a hidden highlight of the series. I'll, I'll say this. This is not something that I put on the best of DGUSA. But if we get like a four dicks box set, you know, this is something I'm putting on like disc four. For you know, sure, for sure. It's like a, like a nice hidden gem B-side deep cut match because it's just like nine minutes. Masaki Mochizuki does this crazy, like, not leg lock on Eric Cannon partway through this match. I'm just like, okay, that's awesome. That rules. Like, Masaki Mochizuki doing, like, you think he's Milano, doing, like, a crazy not uh, submission. It just was, like, a super fun sprint that, like, in front of, like, a Philadelphia crowd, I feel like this is something we're going to be seeing a lot, might be a four-star sprint. It might be. The crowd's just that bad, and, you know, it just bums me out because this match owned. Yeah, it, it's a victim of circumstance both both nights. The Mochizuki versus Callahan match, I'm in front of a hot crowd. That is a, you know, spreadsheet, four stars, if not four and a, a four and a quarter star match, because Callahan versus Mochizuki was really, really good. And here, you know, Cannon's a step down, but this still, you know, it's three and a half star match. It's just exactly what I wanted from these two guys. Exactly. And then post-match, building up the big tag match, which I think they've done a really good job over this weekend, at least of the shows itself, building up Susumu and Mochizuki versus DUF as a big tag match. I think they've been pretty solid about it. Uh, I, I, will say, I will say real quick. Oh, no, go ahead if you're talking about DUF still. Oh, no, I was, I was talking about the post-match segment. Yeah, between I, these, I, I will just go mention ahead. real quick. I think this is what we will see more of in the future of these weekend-long storylines. I think... The idea of doing some sort of Kamikaze USA versus Chikara Sekigun, like unit storyline across six months or so, I can't think of anything like that with the exception of maybe 
Gargano versus Ricochet, and you know, to an extent, Gargano versus Taylor, which are kind of at the back end of the promotion. I think this is kind of going to be the thing. It's we're going to see American versus Japanese guy. We're going to see it built up on show one and built up on show two, and then it'll happen on show three. And you're exactly right that the DUF versus Mochizuki and Dakosuka build has been very strong leading up to their tag match on the next show. Yeah, so basically we have a shorter schmoz than we had last week, so it actually made it, it did not like go too long. Like you had Callahan Susumu hit the ring, then Piki Sanchez gets in, then gets laid out, then DUF claims that tomorrow that they will win tomorrow, and then they throw Pinky Sanchez out of the ring. It was like three minutes, but it was an incredibly effective three minutes building up like this weekend long storyline. DUF man, as of June twenty eleven, they are a good unit, and we will see if that changes, but for now <laughs> I am really enjoying them. I'm saying from my memory, it's going to change pretty drastically. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we had a promo for United Philly, which is now on DVD, which is for th- good on them, five months. That's not bad. G- no. Given what the previous shows, what what that turnaround was for the DVD, United Philly coming out five months later is not too bad. If we have anyone who likes making charts, l- let's keep a chart on how long things are. Because we had like a nine-month one. Now we have a five-month one. Like they're They're not doing too bad on that. Then we had the semi-main event. It was Air Fox versus Akira Tozawa, and a match that went 17 minutes and 41 seconds, longest match on the show, with Akira Tozawa putting away Air Fox with the packaged German suplex. I love this match. I went four stars. This is a match that, you know, given the time, and again, doing like an upstart versus veteran thing, and it's kind of wild thinking that within a year, Akira Tozawa went, on, went from being an add-on, being a semi-main eventer, and being like, the guy that you have Air Fox do his big, like, singles match, like his first big test against, and I ended up really enjoying this. It is a three-and-three-quarter star match that, given the story, the overall big picture of Akira Tozawa and his final U.S. excursion match, now plays the dominant veteran against the squirrely young Air Fox. The story of this match puts it at a four-star match for me, because it is... So well done, where A.R. Fox gets to hit all of his big moves, the apron leg drop, the low main pain, which I think that was the first time he had done that on a Dragon USA show. He gets all of his big spots out of the way. He looks good. He has a few big hope spots. And Akira Tozawa ultimately puts him away with the arm capture German. He looks more dominant. He looks better. And he rides this wave of momentum back to Japan for something we will talk about a few weeks from now. But a... a just, you, you wouldn't think about it, given A.R. Fox and Akira Tozawa. I don't think the term smartly worked match is what would come into your mind, but that's exactly what this was. It told a really, really good story. I really enjoyed this. And this is a match that's the first match I would really say. This felt like a first-round bola match in all the right ways. They had like these two guys with completely different styles that have been kept completely apart come together and have like a great 15, 17-minute match, and it was a great time. And it was something that, like, such a, like, it's a shame that it's on this show. Like, I know that, like, I guess Tozawa had the night off in the next hike. We'll talk about this next week. But if this was in front of that BB King's crowd, that would have been, like, something that would have been, like, the nice, like, feather in, in Tozawa's cap, you know? But this is the last match Akira Tozawa has on this excursion that we have said is, I still fully believe, and other, others that disagree with me on this, the most effective excursion in modern history. This is it. Akira Tozawa, from this point, when he returns in DGUSA, 
in two weeks when we start talking about the next triple shot is a he's a not to pull a, a Jimmy Lloyd thing. He's a very different boy in, in a few weeks. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, it's the, the the one argument that I can see and that I don't really have a response for is the Muto excursion. But I also feel like that is right. that is an entirely different thing where he was on national TV in America and then went back to Japan and became one of the biggest stars ever. And I get that, and I appreciate that. I think the Tozawa thing is just different circumstances. But, you know, what are the historic excursions? I mean, Liger in 86 and 87 when he, he goes to the U.K. and he goes to Calgary. You know, the modern New Japan excursion, with the exception of Hiromu Takahashi, who I think is the standout there, they're not all that strong. I mean, I once saw Evil have an awesome match with Michael Elgin and ROH, but other than that, his his excursion was a total failure. But you know, I I think I saw uh, Show and Yo's best match in the United States against the Young Bucks at an ROH TV taping. God, I had so much, so high expectations for that Tempura Boys excursion that did not plan right, out. Yeah. Oh man, I thought I thought they were going to like take over the American independent scene and I was sorely mistaken. But at least with Hiromu, you've got the Dragon Lee matches, which are, you know, historic, marvelous, as good as anything Akira Tozawa did on his excursion, both in Dragon at USA and PWG, you know, not to mention the AIWs and the ACWs, all of the places Tozawa worked, the Hiromu versus Dragon Lee matches are on that top tier level, if not even a step higher than what Akira Tozawa did. Uh, Shingo's excursion, uh. just to to you know take a Dragon Gate guy, Shingo's excursion's good, doesn't touch Tozawa's. Yamato had a cup of tea in FIP and then went back to his own promotion, so that doesn't really count. So again, the Mudo thing I understand. I, I think it's kind of apples and oranges there, but in terms of the modern Japanese excursion, I don't think there's anybody that even sniffs Tozawa. And it's something that, like, you brought up, like, the Hiromu matches. Like, Hiromu matches work because they work to the style there. Akira Tozawa was having, like, a match that pretty much was years ahead of the time in PWG. Yes, like, very he was, much like, so. Well, like, he was an innovator in this. In DGUSA, he quickly becomes, like, the most inter- becomes like the most over guy when that was not his role there. Hiromu was always going to come back and be a star. Like, he w- it wasn't, like, anointed, but it made sense that when Hiromu came back, he was going to be, like, a junior ace, and that's what he ended up being. They sent Akira Tozawa out there, basically, feast or famine. It got to a point where, and it's, it's like, a thing that, you know, it's a bitter truth, but Shima talks about, like, oh, yeah, no, we brought him over for the weekend, and I told him that his return, t- he doesn't have a return ticket, and he'll come back in, like, six months. It's, it's insane, because we know Tozawa now. You know, international superstar to an extent, WWE superstar Tozawa, 24-7 champion, who could forget? But the start of his excursion, again, he's almost like he presented as like a shy man in Canada when he debuts and opened the Northern Gate. And a year later, he has the most charismatic man in wrestling, having match of the year contenders in this company and in PWG. It is a different human from May 2010 to June 2011, it is a, just, it it is phenomenal. It it is such a fun 13-month period to watch, and then as we'll talk about, he, you know, 
returns to Japan and, and hits the ground running there. It doesn't exactly slow down after this, both his work in Japan and then when he returns to America for Dragon Gate USA. But this marks the end of the Tozawa excursion, which is unfortunate. But luckily, he comes back. He comes back, and he comes back bigger and better. And, you know, this was like a thing that, like, we already knew that he was going back to Japan at this point. Like, it just was like, oh, no, he's he's gone. Like, this is it. This is the end. And we will see. We'll talk about in two weeks the big cork. And we've talked. We, we've alluded to it. But we'll, I think we need to lead off the show for, like, that weekend talking about that. We need to do the Japanese uh, part of the timeline then just because of, like, how much everything is going to change on this promotion. And by proxy, everything changes in DGUSA. I, it's I just would a, firmly agree with that. And then we go right into the main event. It is the three-way freestyle, which just really is just a triangle match. Like, let's call a spade a spade here, Gabe. We all know what this match is. It's a three-way match. And it is between Ricochet, Pac, and Rich Swan. Ricochet gets the win at the 630 splash after probably being real mad at Flip Kendrick onto Rich Swan in 12 minutes and 13 seconds. And the first thing is, thank you, Rob Naylor, friend of the show, for, for throwing out a Swan-style reference to bring it to start us out here. That, that that was like, all right, okay. And then, of course, I immediately then went and saw when style battle was. I was like, okay, we'll be talking about this next week. That's fine. I love all three guys in this match, obviously. Pac, I've you know had a revelation as to just how good he was through this show. Rich Swan, someone that will only continue to get, to get better as we go along. And Ricochet is is in the midst of just a, a career evolution that we still see the receipts of, you know, maybe not today, but two years ago we were definitely seeing them before he was stuck on main event. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about this match. I just didn't know if the three-way was going to play to their strengths, if they're going to be able to do everything that they needed to do. Maybe things would come across even a little too choreographed for me. But all of my doubts were answered and eviscerated by the end of this match. What a phenomenal effort from all three of these men. Yet another Pac match that goes on the spreadsheet. Four and a quarter stars for this main event. There's just so many spots, whether it is the the one that I gift on Twitter of Pac and Rich Swan, Pac having Rich Swan up in the Doomsday device, Ricochet drop kicking the top of that Doomsday device and causing a Poison Rana in return. Uh, there's a moment where Pac does his, uh, you can picture it as I, as I go along because it's the spot that he does in almost every match where he, he kind of does a float over and then hand springs into the other corner, floats up onto the apron, and then you normally go for a springboard drop kick. But this time, instead of drop kicking Ricochet, he does a top rope moonsault to the floor onto Rich Swan. There's just so much stuff like that that is just a next level of high flying that really, for as much as I love Chuck Taylor, I'm glad Rich Swan was in this match. I think I it worked for what they were going for. Yeah, and there's like so many like neat moments in this match that like these three three guys, it's a shame that this wasn't didn't become like a traveling match because these three guys had it's often that you have like tag team chemistry or singles chemistry or trios chemistry, but having like a one versus one versus one chemistry is unique and this match really had this like my only big complaint about this match is it was only 12 minutes long like this is a match where like i know with the pay-per-view considerations but fuck papadon he doesn't need to be on the show <laughs> papadon in fairness did not make the pay-per-view <laughs> oh he did not okay <laughs> so just on cut. the dvd cut that we were yeah. watching but yeah like 
you could have had like or you could have I mean, Aries versus Susumu, you could have made that into an edit package. Because this match was like, this is a match that left me wanting more. And it's a match that I know that we don't really see ever again. And it's just remarkable. Like, one, like, production on this match sucks. Because there's, like, this insane moment where, like, Swan does, like, a front flip seated senton to the outside. And we don't see it happen. Like, we see it in the background instead of on the floor cam. Yeah. No, there, like, there, well, a, there's so much happening. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a small crew. And it's not overproduced, and and when that happens in a match like this, it often ends up looking underproduced because there is just right. so much happening. I will say I'm okay with the match length. I I don't think they needed to go any longer than this. But I also have a question for you, just to jump ahead in the Japan timeline a little bit. There's an Osaka Prefectural Gym number two show, July third, two thousand eleven, where they do a rematch of this match, where it's Ricochet, Pac, and Swan in a three way. Did you ever see this match? Did it ever air? Let me see, uh, where is it on the show? It is the second match on the main card following KZ and Tanizaki versus Don Fuji and Starkery Shikawa. <laughs> that's a shame. I, I, I don't know why time. that's funny, but that is funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just is. It's just, I, I, I mean, if you don't find that funny, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, no, I don't remember that match, and that could just be my memory. Like, dude, well, like, I'm 34, man. I'm old. I don't remember everything. Like, I, like I'm an encyclopedia about a lot of things, but that match, I don't remember ever seeing. I, I would I, like to know from somebody listening if that match ever aired on TV, because I would like to see the Japanese version of that, especially in, in Osaka, who I think would react yeah. greatly to that. But, yeah, and yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to say, like, it's just like one of those things, like, these guys had such solid chemistry between them. And you're absolutely right. Like, as much as I, I think Chuck Taylor has been someone that we've talked about being criminally underutilized – no, you have the right people in this match here. This was this should have been the main event, and it was the main event. And like going into the finish, where like Pac is about to, like Pac is about to, I guess, go for the three sixty shooting star that we now know as the Black Arrow. That thing's had like four names, by the way. That's wild. But uh, you have Ricochet do like this this really great enziguri that like doesn't get talked about and for obvious reasons, but just like a nuts insecurity that happened. I'm like, Oh God, that's crazy. And that lead right into the finish. And you know, I went four flat on this, but this is a match that maybe I just wanted more of this match. And I was like, no, go 15 minutes, go 20 minutes. I want to see how, how long this bad boy goes. Maybe that would have been a disappointment. But for me, I was left with this match wanting more. I think that that's an okay thing. I mean, you know, Rich Swan takes the pin on the six thirty, but I also think it is a major coming out party for Rich Swan to prove that he can hang with Pac and Ricochet, because he is clearly not looked at on the same level as those two guys. Again, Rich Swan is kind of looked at as the fall post and almost a glorified jobber in Ronin, but here he holds his own. He looks great. I I love this main event. I was so delightfully surprised at just how good this was. Yeah, no, that's entirely fair to say. And then post-match, we can barely make out the promo there, but then he starts that, but Ricochet starts hacking Pac, and then Yoshino made the save. And then Pac made the go-home promo and hyped the the matches for the next night. And Yoshino did the English go-home where Yoshino, unlike, uh, actually unlike Shima, seems to actually really like uh, being in Long Island and says he will come back soon. You know what I will say about this closing promo is that it was almost concerning given the DUF stuff with Mochizuki and Susumu and the promo run-in save angle sort of formula, they just did the same thing in the main event. And it is 
one of those things, you know, Gabe Sapolsky's booking is very cyclical, and we know when Gabe is inspired, and we know when he's not, and that is typically ultimately reflected on, on how business is going. And just, it's a small thing, but given the broken PA system and the dark venue with a few hundred fans, and just the weekend as a whole with the talent that's on the card, I think Gabe is checking out a little bit, and he's getting lazy by essentially running the same angle twice on one show. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. It just seems like that. It was like, oh, we had to hype something up, so we're going to do this this way. Just the, just the, the oh, like, oh, yeah, pro wrestling logic. Okay, you know, go out and hit him during the promo, and then we'll make the save, and just, you know, don't think twice about it. Don't try to innovate anything. Just get the job done, and that is very much what this show felt like. Despite the last two matches being four-star matches, if not, you know, higher in my book, it was uh, it was a show. It was a show. Yeah. I mean, it was better than last week, better than two weeks before, but not great. And it's a show that, like, had these matches that I ended up really liking, but I'm just like, I can't forget, like, the other stuff that happened on this show that just was so underwhelming and just, like, very much, you know, like, Austin Aries has been a pox on this promotion since the jump, and he ruins a big part of the show, you know? Like, I think it's fair to say that, like, it was because of that, like, it ultimately, like, fucked up the show, and it ruined the show in a lot of ways, and then you get that bitter taste in your mouth and it's near impossible to get that taste out, you know, and it just frustrates you endlessly. And then I ended up being incredibly frustrated by the show. And even though I felt like the show with the final show in Atlanta and the night before might've been a worse show. I don't, I've not had as much like bad vibes on a show as I had for this one. Like this was like a peak bad vibes show for me. Well, it's just, it's the, like we said at the top, it's the marking of a new era and things are going to change, and look, I've seen most of the shows from this year that follow this, and I like some of those shows, or at least I liked some of those shows, but it's a new era, and Japanese talents, they're going to be fewer and fewer as we go along, and it's just going to be very interesting to see how a Johnny Gargano and a Sammy Callahan and a Pac and a, and a Rich Swan how they evolve as the year goes on. Because right now, they're in a healthy spot where it feels like a lot is happening for them, and it's clear these are the top guys, and these are the guys that WWE would eventually pay attention to. But it, there's there's not a ton to be hopeful about right now. Uprising is like, okay, that was a fine show. It was better than the bad shows that preceded it. But we're a year removed, a one year removed from Danielson versus Shingo, and World One versus Kamikaze, and I know I love that elimination match more than you. I still think about how great that elimination match was, but that was still the culmination of a feud that I didn't even love. I just loved the blow-off to it of the, the Chikara-Kamikaze uh, blow-off. But still, one year removed, and you're at the NWYC Sportatorium in front of a dimly lit crowd where nobody can hear the promos, second show in a row where the music doesn't work, it's just embarrassing. It's Dranget USA as people came to know it and not what it once was. And there is a specific demarcation point of that timeline when John Moxley leaves the promotion. Yeah. And when they when he leaves the promotion, it does definitely feel like that we this is like the feeling out period. Like it is pretty clear here that like the big program at least at some point is going to be Gargano versus Yamato. 
and it does seem like that understandably so it's gonna be built up as uh as gargano like taking the weight here but does not feel that way yet and that's kind of something that will take a little bit to get used to i'd say yeah i think that's fair and that is that is uprising 2011 yeah it's a this weekend has turned out not to be the weekend getting them back on the right path case. You want to run down the two-year anniversary show before we get out of here? I do. Enter the Dragon 2011, the second anniversary celebration from BB King's Blues Club and Grill on July, or I'm sorry, on June 5th, 2011. Masato Yoshino versus Ricochet, Pinky Sanchez versus AR Fox, a nine-way free match featuring John Davis, Sugar Dunkerton, Caleb Conley, Flip Kendrick, Lewis Linden, Tony Nice, Cedric, Cedric Alexander, Atu, and Facade. Masaki Mochizuki and Susumu Yokosuka versus Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan. A six-way tag team elimination match with Johnny Gargano, Rich Swan, and a mystery partner against the Blood Warriors trio of Brody Lee, Shima, and Austin Aries. And the main event, the back half of the Champions Challenge, Yamato defending the Open the Freedom Gate title against Pac. It's going to be an interesting show. I thought we escaped Facade for a little bit, but apparently we haven't. No, no, no. And we also have Atu to deal with now. Oh, gosh. Atu. In this promotion, I'm only familiar from Atu later on. The greatest moment in professional wrestling history. (laughs) I mean, what else can we talk about that thing? But, yep, that's that's going to do it for this week's episode of Rewind and Rewatch. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. You can follow Case on Twitter at underscore in your case. You can follow me on Twitter at Fujiheya. And I think that's going to do it for us here. Case, anything else you wanted to hit on before we get out? That's all I got. All right. Until next time, we will catch you on Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch. Take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.